Welcome to From Earning to Learning, the podcast where we talk about all things education. I'm your host, Dave Franjosen. All right, welcome to a special edition of From Earning to Learning. I'm very excited about the conversation that we're going to have today. I have with me a former teacher, principal, assistant superintendent, and now the founder and CEO of Gomo Educational Services and fellow New Jerseyan, Dr. Josue Falez. Welcome. Thank you, Dave. So I had first heard you speak a couple of years ago at PCTI, at the ECET2. And for anybody who hasn't heard you speak, um, that was my first introduction to you, and it was powerful and dynamic, and I've been a fan since that day. So, <laughs> yeah, no, you did an awesome job. And this is the first time we're actually getting to talk in person. And, you know, I, I appreciate you coming on and, and meeting with me. I appreciate you having me. So one of the things that um, shortly after that, when I first saw you speak, you introduced yourself as Josh Fillets. And then shortly after that, you reclaimed your name. Now, my grandfather came from Italy in the 1920s, and his name uh, was Orazio Grisario Frangiosa. And when he came to this country, people said to him, that's too hard to say. You're Larry. So until the day he died, he was Larry. And I, I think that had a tremendous impact on him because he never taught his kids Italian. He never talked about Italy and he just kind of compartmentalized that part of his life. So when I saw you go through that process of reclaiming your name, that really hit home for me. So could you talk a little bit about that process for you? Sure. As a young uh, child with the name Josué Falez, the friends that were American or uh, educators, which are all American, said the same thing like to your grandfather, that is too difficult. I don't feel comfortable calling you that name. As a result, the, the actual translation, the English version or the Anglicized version of my name is Josh. And Falez, again, was too difficult the way that it's spelled. They, you know, like mayonnaise, hey, fillets. So for... um. A number of years, I was known as Joshua or Josh Felice. And it got to a point where I was so embarrassed of even spelling because I could still spell J-O-S-U-E. By the third grade, I was so embarrassed. I said, you know what? I'm no longer even writing Josue. I'm going to write Josh. So between third grade to um, my freshman year in college, I only wrote Joshua even though test scores, you know, state assessments, everything else were J-O-S-U-E, but I would really hide that. But everything, teachers knew to always call me Josh. Um, so it wasn't until about my sophomore year in college that I started actually writing my name as J-O-S-U-E because I was so embarrassed of people continually saying that um, spelling, uh, saying Josue was just too difficult and he felt discomfort. And it really bothered me. Then what I did, as you said, in 2019, November 11th, I'm, I'm, I, it's like a, it's like a, a date, uh, a holiday. Um, after years of contemplating 
uh, um, within me, like being Josh in one space and being Josue in another space. And people saying to me, if I see your name is spelled J-O-S-U-E, but you're saying your name is Josh, like I don't understand. And I would always have to say, that's my anglicized name. That's the anglicized version. And um, while at RISA, uh, working on the racial justice, social justice work, and uh, especially cultural competency, and I'm always telling people, you need to claim your name and don't let anyone take away your cultural identity. I didn't realize, on the other hand, I'm perpetuating that. So that's when I made a decision because two things, and I'm sorry to be long, but um, my son, who at that time was seven years old, his name, my, his, my first name is his middle name. So it's Jackson Josue Fales, and he never has gone by Josh as his middle name. So I would say Jackson, Josh, and oh, no, my middle name is Josue. He couldn't say Josue, great, but it's more like Josue. So I'm like, oh, Jackson, that's great. That's great. And I'm, I'm, he took pride in that. And another thing was that same November, um, there's a teacher, there's a teacher um, convention for New Jersey every single year, which you and I would definitely know about that. And um, that November 2019, there was a guy I was communicating with on Twitter for a number of months. We're going back and forth regarding race and uh, Ibram Kendi's book, what we're reading, what we're learning. And we met each other at the teacher convention on November 7th or something, I think the date was. And his his IG handle is different from his name. So at that time we met, I had my booth for being Rutgers and we saw, and I'm like, wait, you have the same name as me. And I know that a lot of people go between Joshua or Josue or Josue. So I said, um, he's Spanish. So I said, Josue, do you go by Josh? He goes, man, I stopped that years ago. And he was like, you need to do it too. As far as your position, you're doing things since he's in New Brunswick. And I was like, I, I, I've been contemplating for a while. Like, it really bothered me like deep in my skin. And at that moment, I went and told my wife, because she always knew my name was Josue Fales anyway, no matter what. Um, but it was difficult for her to say, it. I never held her accountable. But literally that night, that Friday night, I said, from this point forward, I've been dealing with this and I articulated to her why. I said, I don't care who knows me. I'm going to let them know this is what I'm going to go by. And that's why I started changing my name. And I did the post on uh, as a pen tweet on Twitter. And actually, all the social media platforms. That that's awesome. And like you, I named my son Marco Orazio Frangiosa. So you know, like there's there's something like awesome about those names. And you know, I just I want to keep it going. You know, so um, yeah, that resonated with me. And you know, I, I just I can't tell you how much I appreciated that. Thank you. So, so now there's, there's a challenge now. Um, the, there are people who've been calling me Joshua for 40 years or more. Um, I remember one person, I met him literally the week or a couple of days before he knew me as Josh and I changed it. Um, and he's like, man, it was difficult for me to even say Josh. And now you're asking me to say Josue and I'm, yep, I'm holding everyone hundred percent accountable. So now we're going on almost two years that, that I'm holding everyone. You don't call me Jay. They say, can I call you Dr. F or Dr. J? My name is, you call me Dr. Josue Fales or just Josue Fales, but there is no, there's no abbreviations of it. I don't have it. Um, is there a quick version? No. And I'm mentioning this because um, I'm having certain people that are refusing to call me by my name. 
And unfortunately, it is all of the same group of people that I've known for years have chosen to sever our relationship because they refuse to call me by my name. And the unfortunate thing is they're all white. 100% No, there's all the facts. And that's one thing that as I'm looking continually, people that even live near me, they've known me for years. I don't want to call you that name. I'm not saying it. And they've just severed relationships. That's that's terrible. Um, Church members, it literally doesn't matter. Yeah, I, I'm sorry you're dealing with that. Oh, it's, it's fine. It's their loss, as far as I can see. Oh, I I agree with that 100. percent Look, I know what you bring to the table, <laughs> and you know, so um, yeah, you're you're a positive guy, you. you know, and um, like that that comes through in your keynotes. Um, that comes through on Twitter, and um, I think it was yesterday. I saw a tweet that you put out, um, no compliance checklists, shifting mindsets, hearts, and practices. And, you know, compliance is my least favorite word in education. I've must've said that a million times. It it's horrible. I wish we can do away with it, but from your perspective, because now you've been in the classroom, you've been an educational leader, and now you're going into hundreds of districts. So you're seeing the challenges, not from that fishbowl of this is where I work, but you're seeing it, you know, widespread. So in your opinion, what are the challenges and what are the things that need to be changed? That's a loaded question because uh, depending on where you're at, the challenges are different, but overall it is the systems that oversee education uh, because the systems have been designed for people to fail. And if you're trying to succeed in the system, it's like you perpetuate those same uh, things. And that's why we see continual manifestations of it. And that's de decreasing um, the perception about how people can do and what they can do. Um, assessments being biased. So like yesterday, there's one thing I, I, I took uh, some, uh, um, a number of people, actually the whole district yesterday, one of my um, key, part of my keynote was to give them an actual IQ test to show them how biased it was. Um, and people had no idea, given the history behind assessments. Um, and the same that how this construct of race is. And it's like, you know, you're, you're you, when you, as far as like looking at identifying subgroups, that's, you know, the word sub is the word under in Latin. So it's ubum. And it's like you're if you talk about a different population, it's like subgroups and it's always certain groups that are considered part of that subgroup. And it's like a win, win and lose type of, of thing. So we have to change the way that we look at education, but it starts with those policies. Policies create structures, structure creates regulations and regulations now impact practice. So. Um, as I'm working with a number of districts right now, we're looking at straight, like, how do we dig deep in policies to understand what it means? Like, you're not just buying a policy from a dish, uh, um, from a, uh, a manufactured company and they're making millions. And then um, you're just putting your name or, or the district letterhead on it. Like, let's look at those policies maybe you purchased before and look at the data that's impacting a, a, a group based on that policy. And I mean, the easiest one is discipline. And 100% of the schools that I've worked with and continue to work with, all of them have the black, especially African-American males, 
discipline, you know, not just suspension, but discipline overall, 100%. So there's a problem with there as far as like how we're disciplining our children, especially our uh, black and brown students. So now what is the structure that's created under that policy? It's like as if anyone that that's that's operating under the that's under the zero tolerance things, whatever it may be for your district or your school, it's always happens to be punishing a certain group. So if you look at the data, you'll see it consistent with that. So that means we need to change the policy because there's certain things that that are consistent with certain cultures that people say that you disrespect. But it's like, what does respect mean to you? It means something different to everyone else. But then the structure is kind of shaky and then out based on people's values, beliefs. And you're attaching it to again to those structures, which the regulations, which is still contrary to that maybe of certain communities, but yet you still operate under that as a practice. That's from the top all the way down. And again, you're, I went back to the values and beliefs with the heart. Some people, um, some people still do not follow. Um, let's say even what you have like maybe regulations. It's just like based on what feel how, how I feel today. I'm not feeling it. In this child maybe doesn't have a pencil. The policy doesn't state that you or, or code of conduct say that you can suspend, but you end up doing it anyway. You just don't want to deal with them that day. So there's a lot that goes on with that. And it's like um, we need to get this this uh, point that we understand some of the challenges, but it comes to relationships. Do we know and understand our students completely? Do we understand their challenges? Do you understand the inequities that have taken place that have gotten to this point today. And it goes for all, you know, I'm looking at all cultures uh, um, from religion to sexual orientation, to gender, to class, um, you know, race, the, uh, uh, um, it, the ableism, you know? Uh, uh, so once we look at that and identify it for your community, for, you know, your school, then you can start looking to address people as individuals and address that equity. So that's really the ultimate problem because now you have a heart because there's there's a vested interest uh, in supporting people according to the challenge that they have that's that's aligned with your community and goals and vision and mission. So it's not just a, a quick model and 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 things on writing statements and then you you go as as the status quo things that you're you're doing. So um, in a nutshell. Um, identify your policies, see how they're inequitable, looking at the data to justify the inequities. Then you'll see the structures that have been set up because of those inequities called structural inequalities that perpetuate from that. Then you look at the regulations to see if they're aligned to it and still perpetuating it. And then you can actually start checking practice. And um, then you'll see all the values that you have displayed. And it's not just one person, not just a leader, but everyone. How can you start aligning those values to that? So that way, as a district, as a organization, as a community, that you start saying the same things to the students uh, and even the community that represent their epistemologies. And then that's really going to help everyone grow collectively. All right. So now I have a follow up to that. All right. So that's great. And in order for that vision to come to fruition, we need administration involved. So. What happens if there's teachers? Like, what advice do you have for teachers to get the ball rolling? So, um, you know, what can we do from the classroom? There's a lot that you can do from the classroom. And, and, I, and I use an example from when I was teaching. Um, it was, I remember being a brand new teacher in Plainfield, uh, New Jersey. And the there were things that were going on that people, I just was, I, I wasn't sure and, and feeling it. It's like, you know, what, I'm going to start doing my thing. 
But then I started drawing in my team members. Like I'm working on, I remember students were in seventh grade. I was teaching seventh grade class science. And it, all of the students, 100% had, excuse me, except for one. And I taught over 120 something students. They didn't even know how to write cursive. Now I made it my thing to go to uh, a, a store and purchase the cursive books, make copies. Then I'm go on Saturdays. And then it's like, we're going to teach cursive while teaching science. Um, I remember with, with, with uh, uh, things with um, whatever lesson it was about vibration or something, I would bring in a guitar because I used to play a little bit. And it's teaching the students these things while we're teaching science. So it's like, and then I remember just bringing my team. Um, people weren't as, as oriented. So I'm like, we're, what are you doing in your in language arts class? How can I bring that as far as help the students write papers? What are you doing in in math class, how can I use that? Because we did a lot of math and science with um, um, uh, physics, you know, force, uh, power. So I was bringing all that stuff in to really get the students and they're still learning how to do cursive, seventh grade, because it was a difficult thing for them to do. So that alone is starting that just within the classroom. And if there's a team concept just within there, like my house, that's all we we kept doing as, as, as this team. And we would always, and that's, I started I used to go visit a lot of students' homes on my own. And people are like, why are you always visiting these students' homes? I'm like, I want to get in their house and them to see me. And I would schedule. Um, I was dating someone, but it was she was my wife was um, in uh, undergrad three hours away. So I had my Friday nights open. And I would make uh, a lot of, a number of visits on Friday nights and go to different homes. And I would say, I'm coming over. I'll even eat dinner with you all. If that's something because I was really, I mean, it's different now that you, can, you can't really do that. But that's how it was engendered. And people start seeing that. And the team member said, you know what, since you're going to visit these homes, let's go together. And we would literally get in my car. We would bring our, we used to have those crates and your portfolios and go make visits. And that was something that this teacher saw that, and it drove like other teams start seeing like the um, C team is doing this. I, hey, hey, we want to start doing that too. So it's like, it became a culture. And I did that solely from the classroom. Now I was going to my, you know, my master's program to be an administrator. These things were still, you know, happening, but um, I didn't do it just for the master. It's something that I just wanted to do because I wanted more and I really just cared. It wasn't just, I say, I, I care about the kids. I showed it. Um, some, it, it took a while for some students to really appreciate it. They were unhappy. Like, why is he doing this? Why is he calling my parent? And it wasn't just for negative things, even positive things. Why is he coming over my house? And I would say to them, I'm coming over your house today. Don't play with me. And it became a thing where even if I was absent for something, they were like, you know that, you know, that time was Mr. Felice. Uh, Mr. Felice, you know he doesn't play that game and he cares about this. And that's what we want. That's where they know the students are getting what they need and they have someone that fully, fully cares for them is going to go all out. And even till today, all these years later, students that I've taught intimately know me. Uh, being a principal, I, mean, I was at, at a school with 1,382 students. Do you know that every single student knew me intimately? I knew every single student's names. Uh, at that time, I used to memorize test scores over the summer so so well that when they came in, unfortunately, I attached their name to the test score. But then that when I started reviewing assessments and everything else, I knew those students intimate. And I could say, hey, this week you didn't do your um, you didn't do so well on this this um, um, uh, formative assessment. Um, and I want you to make sure that you're going to do some 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 things and follow up on your homework. Because I really looked at those type of assessments so that I knew every single individual by week, by month, whatever those benchmarks were, they knew that I knew and I followed up. So that's a way as far as that I did as a teacher, as a principal. 
And even now, um, I did this as an assistant superintendent, really knowing, uh, working with principals, you know, work, you know, it, unfortunately, it was more so during their evaluation time um, and when benchmarks were due, but it was a way to really guide them and look at it, you know, from one month or quarter, whatever it is, to guide them and seeing how are we looking at each child to support them according to their needs. And now it's at, as um, what at, at Rutgers and then even now, it's um, guiding them, giving exemplars, telling them these stories as far as these are things that I, I did and what you can do yourself because I lived it 100% and no one can deny it. And I can give you examples and show you and work with you if that's something that you're looking to do as far as like, you know, through some equity consulting, um, uh, uh, different types of workshops that offer you strategies and certain things. So that's one of, these are all the different ways across the different levels that I was able to do it. So now I, I know there is a story that uh, you told in that presentation about um, how you represented every student in your building with their country's flag. So like, yeah, talk a little bit about that. So um, that's, yeah, that's my keynote. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there was a part where uh, a time we at that, at that time I was a principal, my last principalship, we used to put flags in the hallways and they were taped and they were coming up, uh, up during the multicultural uh, week or multicultural month. I think I forget what we used to have. And then we would, it's multicultural month. And during the month, we would have uh, different type of assemblies, food um, uh, events, maybe in the evening. Um, but the flags were around the, uh, the the building. So some were taped across and just some were taped to the wall. And they kept falling down. Or sometimes students would knock them down and, and you know, joking around, hitting them. And we got to a point where this, this one time putting it up and down, um, one female student, and I can't remember which country she was from. It may have been Madagascar. I'm not sure her family was from, stated that my flag is not th uh, up there. And I was like, oh, and th it's the committee for the multicultural committee. Just to, they, they were unable to find that flag or get that flag. So she went and asked the art teacher, can, is there a way just so I can feel valued? Like as if you got all these other countries there um, that you could put my flag, I, I can paint it. It'd be in the corner of the art room. And I can feel like as if, if I feel valued, like you care about my country because you got all these other countries that are up there. So the, uh, our teacher happened to have the supplies and we took, it was actually our actual ceiling tile, took it down. She put it, it was in the corner of the art room, so it didn't really impact anyone. And she felt valued. And then guess what? Another student said the same exact thing because we were missing certain countries. So again, um, uh, painted it, put it in the opposite corner. So now these two females felt valued, like, thank you. But now it's up there all year long, not just taken down. Then uh, uh, those two females uh, came along with about seven other females. They went to the art teacher with this plan and said, this is what we're going to do because you're missing certain countries and people may feel valued. What we'll do is we're going to commit like our lunchtime and sometime after school. And we will take the ceiling tiles down or, you know, custodian take it down. We'll paint it all on our own time. And for the, they did the, they said, we'll do the research, we'll do the outlines and we'll paint. So the art teacher came to me and said, hey, this is the plan that these students on their own came and they want to do. And, um, and I just said, what do you need? And she said, I need, you know, paint, I need this, I need, I said, whatever it is, 
this is going to be powerful. So I said, what you can do is every other tile in the hallways, because we kind of the numbers and her and the phys ed teacher, um, again, gave up lunchtime, came to school early, um, stayed after school. And those students did it for about three to four months on their own time and finished it. And these are the evidence. I, I, I remember displaying the evidence to you once it was complete. And every time anyone that walks into that building, and again, I haven't been there um, in, in many years, but it was like, you see yourself, you see your country represented somewhere throughout that building in the hallway. So what do you notice about the culture of the school after that was done? It was very powerful because as parents walked in, they kept looking up, they were looking to see where their country was at. And when it was, some people just actually stop, even take a picture and feel so valued. Like you really took the time to display it. And this one, one, again, I showed you the picture, students took their time. It wasn't something yeah. that was a rush job. Mm -hmm. The detail, and these are not even artists. These are just students that said, you know what? I want to display that much value for that country that I'm not going to mess this up. And if I did, we threw the tiles out, replace it, and, and they, try, they tried again. Um, and that's something that they left a legacy that even – was it six years since they left? If it's still up there, which I don't see why you would drop that, uh, take it down, that these students uh, are left a memory that anyone who walks in, this was their, their this was their work. They they loved the school, they loved the country, um, their country so much that they did this for everyone. It wasn't just their country; it was everyone. Nine female students. That's awesome. So staying with the positive, now you're in all these schools. What are we doing right? This with COVID, it's it's um number one, people are displaying resiliency. It's it's tough because of being solely on an environment, you have uh, digital overload, um, not being able to have as great a relationship um with the students. I mean, as human beings, you know, we're we're we just love being in contact in physical uh, um, uh, space of another person. So to me, the um, showing up is number one. And, and, and I, that's the start. It's more like this person showed up on the screen or uh, just speaking to me uh, is that's being done right. The other thing is um, people are trying more now than they ever have before. Uh, what you used to hear as far as like, I don't, I don't know this technology stuff. You can give it to someone else. There is no excuse for that. Now you don't, you can't use it as an excuse. This is, uh, for most part, this is where it's at, and um, people are are stretching themselves and they're growing to create a different new normal for education, and that is what's being done right now. And having that expanse, having this growth mindset, actually, it's not even a mindset. This is now growth practice that you have to keep constantly going through each day, and you don't have a choice. It's stretching you norm normally than before. And as a result, you're going to be doing more for to support students. Now, in some cases, you, you know, it's like you're still taking a risk. You're still trying. You're still unsure. But it's like now there are so many more people that are in this um, growth zone and cannot come out. That's what we needed. They're in there taking risks where probably they could be safe. It's no, it's, it's, it's the same thing now. So to me, that is what's being done right. Opening the opportunities for risks, for growth, and and it, it, like no is not a response. Can't, it, can't, no more excuses. Awesome. So how does 
GOMO educational services fit into this? What supports can you give and how can people get in touch with you? Okay. So can I respond to one question? I want to elaborate with something before we yeah, go back. Absolutely. I know you probably edit. Um, you stated that not just what you can do as a teacher and then the admin needs to come into uh, uh, like, how do you work with admin if they're not fully behind this? And um, I saw this as a challenge while at Rutgers. I used to initially train teachers. Now, there is more reach into supporting teachers and training teachers and developing teachers, but then the work stops. And it's like when the teachers go to their classrooms and they're trying to come to their schools and they're wondering, okay, it's hitting a wall because the, the, the administrator is not aware. They don't know how to support it. That was the shift that I took to start training leaders. So my focus group at GOMO is supporting leaders for sustainability. Because once we train the leaders on um, restorative practice, social justice, anti-racism, cultural competency, uh, SEL, we train them as far as how to look for it, how to guide it, how to support it. Um, um, they can now better support their teachers. Then we see more results in their schools. And if it's not just the teachers, we're supporting leadership teams, whether by school or by district, because the, now I can get back to the work of GOMO. Uh, what we do is build the capacity of educators to empower um, voice and agency. And it's best when we do that through the teams, the adult teams on how they're going to do that for their students. Uh, in the past, it was all about students need to do what I say. Now it's like, how can we have students um, come to their self-actualization and then support and guide that and give them agency. And then they start advocating for themselves. Now they can start doing things according to their choice, not someone else's um, inculcation. Um, so uh, that's the ultimate work of GOMO supporting that and through, uh, through um, six different platforms. One is the network platform where uh, network building districts or organizations may bring a team of people or individual uh, over time throughout a year. Uh, we look at big picture topics and then we drill our way backwards so that way they can see the big picture and say, whoa, okay, great. We have that vision for that. We know what it is. Now it's like, what are those baby steps backwards? And everything's with plans. So like they walk out with tangible things. Um, we have conferences. These are, you know, one shot things that they see that they may need support. Then that brings them to want the next platform, which is on-site workshops. Um, these are uh, high, high impact, high yield uh, type of workshops that are three or six hours. Um, to anything that they want that's under the equity umbrella. Uh, we have keynote addresses, as you experienced, one-hour workshops that we offer anytime throughout the year. And it's all about engaging, motivating, and leaving people inspired. And then, again, let's get some more to get in and do more work with your uh, leadership team to support your teachers. Um, there's equity audit that is looking at your, um, your systems, policies, uh, practice, and finding out where these inequities exist and then creating a plan for you to see how to be able to address it. And last of all, we just started um, equity consulting this past year, uh, where it's assistance and guidance and support anywhere that you're in equity and just need um, some uh, help. And we're there to, to provide that. And uh, your other question was about um, how can people get in contact with GOMO? It is uh, GOMO uh, dot, well, excuse me, GOMOEDServices.com is our website. The 
uh, social media platforms is at GOMO, G-O-M-O-E-D-S, all platforms, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, we're going to get the LinkedIn uh, set up. And I think that's it. Yeah, those are the four platforms. And, and you personally. And me personally is my name. Uh, uh, every platform is at J-O-S-U-E-F-A-L-A-I-S-E. Again, at Josue Fales on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. All that will be in the show notes too. So, uh, and speaking of your keynotes, anybody who has not heard Al Hassan, um, like that guy's amazing as well. So, um, you got some good stuff going on, my man. Uh, keep it up. Thank, Thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. I look forward to hearing your feedback. For more resources, visit www.reimagineschools.com or reach out to me on Twitter at David Franjosa.